the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It is a normal part of life to be evaluated by other people throughout our lives, from the time you start school, even before then, by your parents, work, retirement. To be examined, judged, watched, considered. And no matter how singularly focused you may set out to please just one individual, others always come into play. Think about it. Dating. All you care about is to make him happy. You want to marry him, and that's all that matters. But then you realize he has friends, he has parents, he has exes. Anyone who's ever planned a wedding knows that it's never just about what you want. You can't just invite your friends. Your parents have people they want to invite. There are people you work with that you have to invite. They're evaluating. They're examining. People are watching. People are judging. Work. Just pass the interview and press this one interviewer and you'll get the job and you show up and there's three interviewers sitting at the table. And you find out that's just round one of five. You get the job. And you just want to make your manager happy. But then there's pressure from your team. Then there's help requested from another manager that you don't, you're not accountable to. And yet you need to help them and please them. And even if you have your own company, it's never just one person that you have to please. It's that guy's boss. It's that guy's customers. People are watching. People are evaluating. And if any of these examples resonate at all with you, you realize that it's no wonder that our desire for a singular focus on God in our ministries is completely muddled with the fear of man and pleasing others. This morning, Paul gives us some help. He brings it back to basics by boiling, boiling down those who evaluate our ministry to three distinct or general, general groups or individuals. Then he explains the impact of each of them. In essence, this morning, we will be examining the examiners of your ministry. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, our passage for the morning as we unpack 1 Corinthians, have been unpacking 1 Corinthians verse by verse. Verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 4. Paul writes, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. This morning, we will look at three evaluators of your ministry and their significance. Three evaluators of your ministry and their significance or their impact. 
And before we get into the actual outline, when you look at the passage, you notice that Paul uses this word examine three times in these two verses. All three times it is the same Greek word. Now, if you have the NIV, the ESV, or even the KJV, you have the word judged. Again, same word three times. Both examine and judged are helpful to understand what Paul is talking about. This word in the Greek literally means to question, to examine, to investigate, or evaluate. Question, examine, investigate, evaluate. And perhaps as you read those or as you hear those four meanings, you can see that all of these are pictures of an examination in a courtroom. And he even mentions that in verse 3, any human court. To be clear... This evaluation, this judging, this examining is not the part of the courtroom trial where a final verdict is given. What he is referring to, and as we unpack these three groups of people that evaluate our ministry, he is talking about, if you followed a court case, all of the examination that comes before the final verdict, so that the final verdict can be made. The evaluating, the examining that leads to the verdict. Perhaps it's helpful to remember the term you've probably seen in those legal shows, cross-examination. It's the same term here, to examine a witness, to examine the facts, to evaluate what is going on. And that's exactly the idea here. And we will see, again, three different groups or individuals who evaluate the facts to the degree that they can of Paul's ministry and, by correlation, our ministry. And from those three groups come our outline for this morning, which, again, is three evaluators of your ministry and their significance. Let me give you our first evaluator of your ministry and their significance, and that is others. But the full point is others' opinions are inconsequential. Others' opinions are inconsequential when it comes to your ministry. Look at the beginning of verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. He starts with the word but, and this shows us that Paul is referring to what he has just said and is making a point of clarification. By way of review, in addressing the Corinthians' unbiblical elevation of Paul and other teachers in the church, to the degree you remember that there have arisen factions within that local church, stemming from each of these church leaders, or at least in name, Paul says not to view them as leaders of teams or groups, thus causing division. We saw this last week, remember. He says, don't even lift them up to some sort of status outside of, as we saw last week, a slave of Christ and a steward of his word. He says, we're just servants, we're just stewards, we're just doing the work of the ministry, joyously and eagerly so. But don't lift us up, don't put us on a pedestal, definitely not to the degree that you are fighting each other, using us as a means to outdo each other in your own minds. This, slave and steward, Paul says, is how I want you to view us. But, that being said, it is a very small thing that I'd be evaluated by you or by any human court. You see the connection. This is how you need to see us, but in reality, 
what you think of us doesn't really matter. In other words, your opinion of me and my ministry are inconsequential. Paul says it doesn't matter. He's not saying that, look, you're just a bunch of sinful, ungodly fools that have no right judging his ministry. And it's not that he despises public opinion. He's simply saying this, that as a servant of Christ and his word, man's evaluation doesn't matter because they are neither Christ nor the author of his word. Makes sense. I don't care if you don't think I'm doing a good job. The boss says I'm doing fine. Right? Brother, I don't care if you don't like that we have to stop the TV show and do chores because mom and dad say, and it's the same thing. I don't care if you're mad. I don't care if you don't like us. I don't care if you think I failed because you're not Christ. And your words are not scriptures. Because of that, they lack the competency to properly evaluate. We've all dealt with this. Right? You, you share some challenges of work, of your work with someone, and even as you do that, you realize this guy probably doesn't get it. Right? He's not in finance. He's not in tech. He's not an engineer. He's not a construction worker. And in that short conversation, it becomes very obvious that not only are they not experts in your field, they have no clue what your job is about and really have misunderstood what your challenges are, and yet they start making suggestions of what you should do. You're gracious, you're nice, maybe you nod, maybe you stop them, but often the suggestions don't even make sense in your own field. In their job, it might make sense. In your job, it makes no sense. It will get you fired. It will get you physically harmed. It's because they don't have the training. They don't have the degree. They don't have the experience. They don't have the job. They don't have the competency to evaluate. And that's what Paul is saying about the Corinthians in regards to his ministry to Christ. See the difference. And it's not just them. He says, even any human court, they can't evaluate me. Literally, in the Greek, human day, it reminds us of that saying, getting his day in court, same idea. And we know that Paul was familiar with standing before legal officers and groups of people that served and acted as judges as they evaluated his ministry and often tried to shut it down. And he says, even those trained, respected, and expected to judge by the principles that govern society cannot truly evaluate Paul's faith and ministry. The law, sure. What he does as a citizen, sure, but not his ministry, not his faith. And understand that Paul is not minimizing the importance of human laws and governing entities, especially the judicial system. He, in fact, tells us to submit to them as God's provision of social stability. He's talking about his ministry. He's talking about his faith. He's talking about his heart. And what he's talking about is the things of the Lord. Since Christ is the one who calls and rules, it is Christ and Christ alone who is to evaluate. Why? Well, you probably can answer that question. But here's three specific reasons. First, we've seen this already. It is God's ministry and God's word. 
And so he is the only one fit to evaluate. These two things are so profound, so rich, that even the godliest of men cannot search the depths of them in others' hearts for the sake of evaluation. And that leads to the second reason only Christ is to evaluate, because only God can see the heart. Man cannot. Because remember, proper ministry, proper faith is not just doing things externally, it's the heart. That's what matters. And so we could try to judge, but we can't even see the heart, read the heart, look at the heart. We can assume, but that does nothing. That's just foolish. And the third reason, it's Christ and Christ alone who is to evaluate, is that man is not all-knowing. Man is not all-knowing. Although that may seem like the same as God alone can see the heart, it is important to note that God always sees the heart. He doesn't just see the heart when he happens to travel through the Bay Area. See your heart. He sees all hearts, all the time, every heart. Wicked, sinner, unbeliever, Christian, righteous, godly. All of them at all times. For Paul, he's saying that the Corinthians' judgment of him and or his ministry doesn't matter. Understand that this isn't a put-down. This isn't an insult, right? This isn't when we get cocky and just say, be quiet, you don't know what you're talking about, right? He's not saying this out of anger or because he doesn't love them. Keep in mind that he's speaking to all of them, those that say Peter is better than him, as well as those who say Paul is best. So he's saying this to even those who are saying good things about him. Okay, He's not just shutting up the people who are saying negative things, and I think that's very important on a practical level, especially as we apply this. In other words, positive or negative, man's opinion is inconsequential. He's not just saying this because the Corinthians are all criticizing him or that he's afraid of a negative verdict from them. Quite the opposite. They are praising him to a very strange degree. This is big picture stuff. This doesn't violate nor negate the biblical call to get into each other's lives. Accountability, encouragement, rebuke, church discipline. But in the grand scale of things and in the ultimate sense, man cannot judge our ministry. And he's definitely not going to give us the final reward and a final day. That might be an important side note. Don't seek man's praise because that's Not the final reward. There's something better coming that you need to work towards. And ultimately, man sees only the externals. And even with that, we all have our own biases stemming from our own guilt on the one hand and our own extra-biblical convictions on the other. That may be good for you, but are not from the Bible and should not be forced on others. You've heard me say this before, but extra-biblical convictions are just that, extra-biblical. The Bible doesn't address them directly. Oh, you can weave your way into a scripture verse, but it's a gray area. And if you think it's absolutely wrong to tell someone else that it is sin, is just as bad as taking away from the Bible because you're adding to it. Let the Bible stand on its own. What are examples of that? Drinking alcohol. Getting drunk is a sin. Drinking alcohol, gray area. Watching movies, watching TV, certain types of music. Smoking cigarettes, 
well, the Bible says we're a temple and we gotta, gotta then stop eating ice cream too. It just falls short, guys. Extra biblical convictions are good for you so long as you don't become a legalist and create rules that are not in the scriptures. And I also want to point out another obvious thing. He's talking to Christians, again, some of which are borderline worshiping him, that they respect him so much. He's talking to Christians. So, if he says their opinion doesn't matter, then the opinion of unbelievers definitely doesn't matter, Christian. Either way, Christian or non-Christian, when you start seeing them as the final judge of your ministry, of your life, of your faith, it's very dangerous, whether we're talking about Christians or non-Christians. It's not a thorough list, but when it happens in the church with, with other Christians, you kind of see other people and, and their praise as your final verdict, your evaluation, you can start getting cocky. Because, yeah, whenever you do something good and righteous, people are going to thank you for it. Get cocky. Or you let people serve in any way they please, even if they're not gifted in that area and their service is hurting themselves or the church. Well, that's what people want. We just want to make everyone happy because they're, they're what matter. You can be afraid to say no to people's ideas. Right? The church is not a democracy. But if you just stop at the level of man's opinion matters most, then people want to do outrageous things and you say, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Right? Yeah, we want to spend $10,000 on a mobile smoothie bar when we're back in Burlingame High School. Good idea. Let's do it. Right? Whatever we want. Right? We need uh, we need more trombones up there. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right? Those are just absurd examples. But even in small things, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, in the church, you can worry more about equal access and participation than quality and godliness. I'm going to say that again. You worry more about equal access and participation than quality and godliness. Uh, he wants to lead small group, let him lead as he leads the sheep astray. Well, give him his fair shake, give him his fair share, give him a chance. He wants to do it. If that were the case, we'd have 30 elders in our church right now. Just kidding, we wouldn't because there would be no church anymore. What about in the world with unbelievers? And this is the issue that Paul's talking about. You start pandering to worldly wisdom. You seek the approval of the unregenerate according to unregenerate standards. You take it too far and you start actually resenting Christians and their standard. And that always starts with your immediate Christian family members. Start resenting them because you're so filled with worldly wisdom. You're so spending all day pandering to the world. You come home. And your dad or your wife or your son says, you told us the Bible doesn't want us to do that, and you get angry. You start resenting Christians because you've placed non-Christians as your standard. Can I be even more practical with you? And again, this happens not just with positive or negative, when people are the final standard for us. Husbands, 
How many times have you done something that maybe is not outright wrong, but some people kind of raise their eyebrows a little bit? Maybe it's spending every weekend away from your family with the guys. Maybe it's a, it's a trip with the guys. Maybe it's a, it's a, it's a favorite hobby that takes you away from your wife for long periods of time. And your response is, oh no, my wife's okay with it. In fact, it was her idea. She even planned it for me. And that's the end of that. But friends, as godly as she is, when did she become the be all end all of what is right and wrong? When did she become the final decider of what makes a God-honoring husband? By the way, this could work the other way around too, with wives justifying things because their husband is okay with it. Look, I'm, I'm okay. I'm glad that your spouse is okay with it. In most situations, I would say that's necessary. That's very important, but that doesn't make it okay. Just because she's okay with it doesn't make, make it right in the eyes of God. Just because she planned for it, paid for it, doesn't make it okay. The same could be said of bosses. My boss doesn't mind that I take this. That doesn't make it okay. Children, parents, whomever. It should be a very small thing that they examine you. It should be a very small thing what their opinion is in light of Scripture. This goes back to the concept of integrity that we talked about in men's group a few days ago. Right, Integrity is what makes you whole, and for the Christian, what makes you whole is the Scriptures and obeying the Scriptures. So it doesn't matter if your company, the checkout person at Safeway who gives you too much change or whomever is okay that they accidentally gave you something that they shouldn't have, the parking spot that you took that's not for you. Integrity is not, well, he said it's okay. He doesn't care. God cares. That's what integrity is. God cares. I don't care if it's a million dollars you accidentally find in your bank account or three cents that the checker accidentally gives you extra. God cares. You think the board of directors of Apple, what is it, a billion, trillion dollar company now, they really care if a guy at the Apple store accidentally gives you 50 cents more change than they're supposed to in the light of how much they make on a daily basis? Of course not, but God cares. God, if you ever worked a, bit, a job like that, there's a leeway, right? You take your, you take the tray of money. I used to do this at a, a, a movie theater in Redwood City that's now closed, right? And then you got to count everything. And even that was a really strict job. But even then, even those people, they had a leeway. If you're short by, you know, fifty cents or dollars, not a problem. That just happens, right? It just happens. But you got to understand that. Every penny counts to the Lord because it's not about money. It's about the heart. It's about integrity. And so we can't just go by what other people are okay with and what other people think. Well, back to the text. You see how Paul is not making a jab at the Corinthians when he says that others' opinions are inconsequential. To make the point, Paul says the same thing about himself. The second evaluator of your ministry and their significance is self. Self-examination is unreliable. Self-examination is unreliable. He goes on in verse 3 and into verse 4, in fact, I do not even examine myself. 
For I am conscious of nothing against myself, but I am not by this acquitted. Remember again, the word examine or judge you have there means to evaluate as, to, as a lead up to a verdict. Even Paul, who can see past the externals and knows his own motives to a certain degree, he definitely knows his own private life. He says, I can't even evaluate that. I can't evaluate myself properly. Think about the big picture. If we are saying that not all, that only God can truly evaluate and not man, then doesn't that include yourself? Aren't you a human being? We often reject others' criticism by saying that our conscience is clear. Exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, I am conscious of nothing against myself. My conscience is clear, but he says, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't acquit me. That doesn't lead to a good verdict. But we say that all the time, right? My conscience is clear. We say that you don't know me. You say, I know myself. My conscience is clear. But that's not far enough. Because what Paul is saying is the buck doesn't stop with you. It stops with God. I'm glad your conscience is clear. But that's not enough. Paul speaks to this. When he says my conscience is clear, he's saying I can't think of anything against myself. Not one thing, Corinthians, that I said or did wrong in my ministry to you, but I know that doesn't acquit me. That doesn't mean it's okay. Acquit literally means justified. It doesn't justify me. I think that's a fitting word because when we say my conscience is clear, we say we're basically saying I'm, I'm justifying my actions. In other words, what he's saying is just because I think I'm right, doesn't mean I'm right. When he says he's not conscious of anything or aware of anything in the ESV, it's the idea of knowing about oneself what others don't know. Which is true. You know a lot about yourself that others don't know. And he says, I'm not aware of anything or nothing. And he's talking about, again, his ministry as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And again, he's saying, my conscience is clear. And that's exactly how the NIV translates it. You know, sometimes when people say to me, you know, we're in a discussion about something that happened, he says, well, my conscience is clear. I say, so what? So what? Again, just because your conscience is clear doesn't mean you're right. I didn't make that up. Paul's saying it. He's saying of himself. His conscience is clear, but it's not someone else saying so what? He's saying so what to himself. I'm not acquitted. I'm not justified because my conscience is clear. Why? One of the main reasons is Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Not I. Of my own heart. Most of you are familiar with the KJV version that says desperately wicked instead of desperately sick. But pastor, isn't it important that my conscience is clear? Absolutely. Yes. The Bible is very clear about that. But here's the problem. Any tool for measurement, which is what the conscience is, is only reliable to the degree that it has been calibrated correctly. And even, as those of you who have many tools in your garage know, even if it has been calibrated correctly, they can break, they can dent, they can be 
miscalibrated over time. And if it's not calibrated right, the reading is wrong. I can't trust most of your alarm clocks because many of you have set them a few minutes fast because you somehow, no offense, ridiculously think that that will keep you from ever being late again. It's just calibrated wrong. I've seen this, right? I've been driving in a car and someone, they're driving and they notice, I look at their clock, you know, they're driving me to an appointment and I kind of react, oh, that's 10 minutes fast, right? Well, if you know it's 10 minutes fast and you... See, the conscience can be wrong, though, on both sides of the spectrum. Usually we say, like, well, the conscience can't be relied upon because when I sin, my conscience says it's okay. But it can be the other end of the spectrum as well. You see, usually we are concerned about it being seared. We're concerned about the conscience being undersensitive, leading to underreaction. But the problem can also be a conscience that is oversensitive and leads to overreaction. In the church, that often leads to legalism and judgmentalism. And oftentimes, just as a side note, not always, oftentimes an overreactive and oversensitive conscience is because your conscience is not informed by scripture, but it's, it's, it's informed by American church culture. Both are a problem. Being oversensitive or undersensitive. Because neither a clock that's 10 minutes fast or a clock that is 10 minutes slow is accurate. They're both wrong. Well, this one's better because it's forward and it keeps me from being late and still wrong. It's still inaccurate. In both cases, the problem is the conscious conscience is under or over the scriptures. It is not aligned exactly word for word with the scriptures. We need to be like Martin Luther, who at Worms declared, my conscience is bound in the word of God. It was David who in Psalm 139 wrote one of my favorite prayers to pray, which is also at the same time one of the most terrifying prayers to pray. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's scary stuff. Like we know God knows anyways, but it's scary stuff to say, I don't even want to try to hide anything from you. But wouldn't you rather know so you can deal with it? Wouldn't you rather God know so he can deal with it? I mean, here's the prayer of a man so in tune with God and so passionate for God's glory that he asked God to search his heart. He's not concerned about what others think, how he comes across, how he's perceived, or even what he thinks of himself. Just God. That's all that matters. 
On a practical level, you do need to understand how important the conscience is for the believer. Are we still on? In Romans 2, the human conscience is explained as an incredibly powerful tool that can defend or accuse you. Both Paul and Peter in their epistle speak of believers having a good conscience. That's a good thing. We need that. We're not saying that the conscience is not important. We're saying that it is not foolproof. It's not the be-all, end-all of what is right or wrong. There is a place for you as a Christian to silence accusers by saying your conscience is clear. But you have to allow that there is room for error and acknowledge that you are not perfect. So go back, reevaluate, search the scripture, search your heart. Tools like the conscience are just that. They are tools. Tools that can be used properly. Tools that can be misused. Tools that can chip. Tools that can be broken. Tools that can be outright twisted or thrown away. I recently shared something similar a few weeks ago with the men and men's group about prayer, and I think it's appropriate here. You know, countless unwise and selfish decisions have been justified by Christians with the phrase, I prayed about it. That's it. I prayed about it, so it must be what I'm supposed to do. I'm okay with it. Again, please pray about it. But that is not necessarily the end of all things. Back when I was a missionary, I was in a predominantly Muslim country. And there was a time early on before I lived there, but I was visiting there every summer, that there were so few foreigners, especially Americans in the country, that they assumed you were a missionary if you were a foreigner. They just assumed it. And with that, they assumed you were going to try to actively share the gospel with them. And so, as soon as you started talking about something serious, they would say, I'm a Muslim. That was their way of saying, decisions made, conversations over, shut up. In the same way, far too often, Christians say, I prayed about it, to tell us who would otherwise give them different or biblical counsel, decisions made, conversations over, shut up. I prayed about it. In the same way we use the phrase, my conscience is clear. Again, while a good tool, not 100% reliable, it's just a way for you to tell others to shut up. I believe sometimes we say my conscience is clear as a way to clear our conscience, to tell our conscience to shut up. I mean, think about it. You don't just say my conscience is clear for no reason. Brush your teeth. Get ready for the day. Good morning, dear. My conscience is clear. Wait, what? Thanks for coming, guys. See you next Sunday. Amen. My conscience is clear. What? Why do you say that? You only say it because something happened. If you walked by two people in church and you overheard someone say, well, my conscience is clear, you'd be like, whoa, what happened there? Because something happened. Something's going on. We got to be careful because the conscience is unreliable. I think oftentimes, because of that, you would say, hey, my windshield is clear. I, I do that. I can see I'm safe. My windshield is clear while my wife in the passenger seat is about to throw up because her side is all cloudy. 
you have tunnel vision. And in that particular justification, your conscience is clear. But oh man, are you wrong and guilty. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times where you say your conscience is clear. And it's clear because you are right. You did the right thing. You did what honors God. And that's great. But what I'm saying that we, like Paul, have to say, like, my conscience is clear, but I know that there's room for error. It's not fully reliable. And you know what? Even if you're right and your conscience is clear, the Bible is very clear that that's not it. The church, Christianity, is not just so that you're happy and you're content and there's nothing wrong because your conscience may be clear and you're leaving a wake of burned, discouraged, offended people in the church. I have a friend, you know, because of the uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye book that came out years ago, he developed his own system of dating where he would not date. He didn't want to defraud anyone. And... He would just hang out with girls and one day propose to one. And good for him. It worked for him. He did it. But he left a wake of girls who understood their conventional view of dating and understood what he was doing. And as they hung out, they were saying, he's going to propose, and then he proposes to someone else. But he stayed pure, which was the goal, and his conscience was clear. Well, if not other people, not even yourself, then who? Well, God, of course. We've seen others' opinions are inconsequential. Self-examination is unreliable. But thirdly, the Lord's assessment is final. The Lord's assessment is final. Look at the end of verse 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Only God has the necessary insight to properly and rightly assess and judge the heart and the motivations for everything you do, specifically in ministry and service. As such, we must not put others, including ourselves, in the position of judge. It wasn't that Paul was not sure of where he was going in the, the future. He understood that the verdict was already made because of Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's making the point of ultimate accountability to God so that we do not fall victim to the ways of worldly wisdom or even selfish wisdom. Like our consciences, other people are a help. They're good. This is not a call to Lone Ranger Christianity. Be involved. Seek accountability. Seek counsel. Seek help. But we are all fallible. And especially if you find yourself focused only on their approval, then you know there's a problem there. And that's all I have for this third point because I think it's very clear. God's assessment is final. And so we've seen three evaluators of your ministry and their significance. Others' opinions are inconsequential. Self-examination is unreliable. But the Lord, His assessment is final. That's why I want to read for you again this passage, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. Piece by piece. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. So, friends, are others' opinions a very small thing to you or are they the biggest thing? 
And I'll just tell you this. There's a good chance if you are human and others' opinions are not the biggest thing, but they are a thing, they will soon become the biggest thing. He goes on and says, in fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Do you see yourself as the final justification for all your actions, or do you recognize your conscience as what it is? An extremely helpful, God-given tool, but fallible. And finally he writes, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Friends, is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? In your heart, in your ministry, in your worship, that's what we're talking about. I, I, I know I don't need to say this probably, but I'm going to say it anyways just to be clear. There are place, a time and a place for human evaluation. Right? If our brother over here sees you going a hundred miles per hour on the 101 and pulls you over as is his job, and you say, oh, I'm glad it's you because you know, only, you know, it's the Lord is the final authority. You were there on Sunday. You heard him. See, I, I don't care what a judge says. You can't give me a ticket. It doesn't matter. That's, you know, that's not what he's talking about. Right? If you keep getting C's and D's, look, professor, I appreciate what you think, but the one, not you, just the one who examines me is the Lord. And so pretty sure it's an A in my book, right? No, try harder, please. Okay. You, you get this. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about specifically your ministry which bleeds into your faith, your walk with the Lord. The one who examines me is the Lord. Is that enough for you? And be careful, friends. Be so careful. Because we can use that last phrase the same way we abuse, I prayed about it and my conscience is clear. Be careful. Do I need to remind you of the God we are to fear? how holy and powerful he is, don't trifle with his judgment and use it as an excuse to shut down other Christians or to justify your sin. The one who examines me is the Lord should at the very same time lift you in joy and strike you with terror. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the ultimate judge. We thank you that ultimately what you are judging and based the verdict on is what your son did for us on the cross. But I pray that we would be a people who learn from this passage and are content with that, that we do not seek the approval of man in an ungodly way, that we do not justify our own sinfulness and immorality by saying my conscience is clear. May we strive for holiness to go above and beyond knowing that we can never glorify you enough. We can never, know how, no matter how far we go, we can never give you and return to you what you are worth. 
And so may we evaluate our own hearts and may we see if it's a specific sin, it's a specific relationship or a general pattern where we may have just kind of put it to the wayside because our conscience is clear or because other people have approved. If there's any areas in our lives and where we seek the standard of the world in an ungodly way that we we capitulate, we bend, we stay quiet because of the fear of man, may we repent and may we repent quickly and ferociously because of what you have done and because of what you have promised and who you are and who we are. Use us in this manner for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.